Hi, I'm Mario. I'm not going to break with Presbyterian tradition today. I'm going to have three points for my sermon. <laughs> Good. Um, let me just say this quick word. My wife and I have been um, looking forward to being here uh, these past few months after we uh, received message that Marshall would be on sabbatical and uh, Grace would ask me to come and fill the pulpit one Sunday. Uh, we have watched the services here very often on YouTube via live stream from the Netherlands when we weren't able to go to church. So we had kind of had the feeling that we were still a part of this community even though we were very far away. And that is not only because of YouTube, but it is because in the four and a half years we've been here, uh, Grace as a church, as a community, has shaped us so much, and uh, for this we'll be forever grateful. Um, let me pray, and then I'll read the text for the sermon for today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, that you are faithful to us even in those times that we are faithless and unfaithful to you. We thank you for the passage we are allowed to study today, the passage that, in which you speak to us today that you are indeed a faithful God. Please impress this truth unto our hearts and help us to receive comfort, true, lasting comfort through it. Amen. Okay, let me go ahead and uh, read our passage for this morning. It's from 2 Kings 8, verses 7 through 15. 2 Kings 8, verses 7 through 15. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was, when it was told to him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camel loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses and you will kill their young men with a sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, what did Elisha say to you? And he answered, he told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth, dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. This is the word of the Lord. So when we received the invitation to come here, I was just uh, conceptualizing, I was in the process of conceptualizing a class for next semester for my students on the Book of Kings. 
So I was um, reading this passage and uh, it struck me as a theologically very rich passage, which we will see in just a moment. Uh, so I decided I would like to preach on this. And, and my wife said, you need to explain why you preach on such an odd passage. And I said, no, no, I'm just going to normalize preaching on odd passages. Okay, so here we go. It is probably no overstatement to say that um, story has become one of the central metaphors for life in the Western world in the past century or so. Uh, we ask other people for their stories if we want to get to know them. Uh, we think of stories as lenses through which we can understand other people, right? Uh, their desires, their fears, their hopes, wishes, perhaps even their political attitudes. Uh, stories have become something of an analytical tool that we use to investigate life, either our own or that of other people. There's a British literary critic, her name is Hermione Lee, and she helpfully compares biographies, so the writing of people's stories, to either autopsies or portraits. Telling the story of someone's life can be uh, a forensic cold analysis, or it could be the painting of a vivid and warm picture. But how do we investigate our own stories with its ups and downs, its joys and its pains, its hopes and its fears? Uh, do we paint colorful pictures or do we cut with sharp scalpels? Is a story a comedy or is it a tragedy? Today I would like to invite you to consider the Book of Kings as a good paradigm for telling us our own story and for investigating our own biography. I know this is somewhat of a hard sell. Why would a 2,600-year-old book about belligerent kings, terrifying queens, and somewhat ecstatic prophets have anything to do with our life? Here's why. Out of all the books in the Bible, I think the book of Kings is probably the most suitable for us to gain an understanding of what it is that makes the world go round. If you want to understand history, including your own story, the Book of Kings is a great starting point. So here's what I plan to do with this sermon, the three points. Uh, first, I'll give you a quick overview of the Book of Kings and its um, story, its meaning. Um, to provide us some context for the passage we are looking at today. Uh, second, we'll look at our passage, 2 Kings 8, 7 through 15, as a snapshot of God's bittersweet story with his people. And finally, we'll come back to our own stories as the place of God's faithfulness to us. So the book of Kings. The book of Kings was written sometime, uh, probably shortly after Israel, the nation that God had chosen to be his people, his nation, was conquered by foreign powers and deported into exile. If you are wondering why would God uh, let something like this happen to the people that he himself chose to be his people, you are asking the exact same question that the book of Kings wants to answer. Its explanation is that Israel was destroyed because of a history of increasingly bad kings and increasingly bad people. It's not like there were not some good kings in between, but in general, 
with a history of increasingly bad kings and increasingly bad people. And in order to prove his point, the author of the Book of Kings takes the metaphorical scalpel of history and he cuts. He uncovers every layer of sick tissue in the nation's past to get to the truth. God had chosen Israel in love, right? To serve him by worshiping him and keeping his commandments. God loved Israel and wanted Israel to love him back. It was the responsibility of a good king to lead the nation in worship, to promote the commandments of God, and to do away with any type of idolatry of bad worship and blasphemy that would show up along the way. Yet the author of the book of Kings shows us how most of Israel's kings not only failed to respond to that calling, but engaged in idolatry and blasphemy themselves. And as a result, the nation lived through many crises. The biggest of which was probably that the northern part of Israel seceded from the southern part, resulting in the formation of two different Israelite kingdoms. The northern kingdom, Israel, the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. And both these kingdoms then were oppressed by foreign powers, such as the Ammonites or the Arameans or the Assyrians. And the people of Israel experienced war, hunger, social injustice. There was no peace in Israel. There is no peace in leaving the God who loves us. The book of Kings is very explicit that this situation was not the result of, of mere chance. At, at every turning point, it is God himself who gives his people into these trials because of their unfaithfulness. It is also God who then alleviates these struggles again when Israel repents. God is the author of history. The mightiest kingdoms, the Arameans or the Assyrians, are tools that he uses to do work on his very own people, Israel. I would like to remind you that the book was written after Israel went into exile, after Israel was deported. So imagine a number of Judahites, the people from the southern kingdom, and they're sitting in Babylonia to where they were exiled, to where they were deported, and they read this book. Their house was plundered, their cities burned, and their temple, the temple of God, destroyed. What do you think their response would be? That God is bad? That God is unjust? I think the book was written to compel them to understand two things. The first one was, it was them and their kings that had rejected God and God's love for them. Sin is the greatest enemy of peace. Second, it is their God, the God of Israel, who rules over all the kingdoms and powers of the world, including those that are currently oppressing them, the Babylonians. So ultimately, the book of Kings, I think, is not an accusation. It is a message of hope. Yes, we failed, but our God is still God. The author of history still has a history with us. We might sit here in exile, as failed people, but God has not given up on us. This is why the book of Kings also ends on a hopeful note. The line of the kings of Israel is not cut. David, 
the one who receives all the promises still has an heir. It ends on a hopeful note. And the book of Kings teaches us this most profound truth about our own histories. It is God who ordains and sustains our stories. The hope of history lies outside of history. It is beyond human reach. It is with God. Now, I realize that this can be a terrifying thought. Our culture keeps telling us that we can be who we want to be if we just keep pressing hard enough. Our culture keeps telling us that we are our own. Our stories, our identities, our histories belong to ourselves. We are the authors of our own story. It is the power of our creativity that writes the lines of the book of our life. But what if everything comes crashing down in a mistake, in a diagnosis, in an accident, or in a crisis of society as we just experienced this past one and a half years? What if pushing hard will not be enough anymore? And such situations reveal that it would be much more terrifying to think that the hope of history was with us. You see, the Book of Kings was not written to strong and successful people. Israel was devastated, deprived, and imprisoned. They were not their own anymore. And it is precisely at this point that the Book of Kings wants them to understand that their hope lies in the fact that they were never their own to begin with. It is because we are not our own, but because we are God's own that we can have hope. And as much as we are not our own, we are also not our oppressors or our enemies. God is the one to whom we and to whom history belongs. And at the end of all, the cutting through our stories, we can't find a picture of hope. The one who holds history in his hands uh, loves us even if we fail and mess up. But what do we actually hope for? What is the hope of history? What is the goal of God's story with us? And this brings us to a passage, 2 Kings 8. So this passage, 2 Kings 8, 7 through 15, I reveals one important aspect of God's story of hope for failed people. That is that God works hard in history to take away our failure. God works hard in history to take away our failure. In order to understand this, we will have to go through this passage piece by piece. Let me read the first three verses again. 2 Kings 8, 7 through 9. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told to him, the man of God has come here. And the king said to Hazael, Take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him, took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camels. And when he came and stood before him, he said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? So who are all these people? Please bear with me for the next two or three minutes or so because it's going to become a little bit more complicated, but I promise that listening hard now will pay off later in the sermon. Okay, it's probably best to start with Elisha. Elisha was a prophet of 
Israel's God, who was working in the northern kingdom, Israel, that has seceded from the southern kingdom. And Elisha was the successor to another prophet whose name is Elijah. And Elijah also worked in the northern kingdom. He did the same thing that Elisha did. And during the time they were both active, this northern kingdom of Israel was ruled uh, by one specific dynasty of kings. It's called the dynasty of Omri. Omri was a very important king in his dynasty. His, uh, his offspring was ruling the northern kingdom at this period in time. And this was a particularly difficult history for Israel because the kings of this dynasty worshipped Baal, a different god, not the god of the Bible, not the true god. And not only did they worship Baal, which they were not supposed to do, but as a result of worshipping Baal, they also oppressed their people. They took away their people's land. They killed innocent Israelites to take away their land. And overall, their reign marks a period of great social injustice, of great evil in Israel. So this is why God sends these two prophets, Elijah and Elisha, to constantly address this, constantly go to the kings of Israel and speak truth to power. Ben-Hadad, on the other hand, is the king of the Arameans. That is uh, called Syria here in this Bible translation. Um, the Arameans uh, were the arch enemy of Israel at that time. They were sort of a political superpower of the ancient Near East. They were somewhat located a little bit north of Israel, and they constantly fought, fought the Israelites. They were in constant war with each other, Israel and the Arameans. Now, Ben-Hadad is the king. Hazael, we're not entirely sure who he was, but he was probably a member of the royal family, and he was probably not the one who was supposed to become king. He was probably an usurper when he, came, when he became king. So here we have Elisha, the prophet of God, of the, of the God of Israel, and we have the elite of the Arameans, and they encounter each other in this passage. And in order to understand the weight of this meeting, because it is a utterly important meeting for the Bible, we have to go back in history to another chapter in the book of Kings. That is 1 Kings 19, so a few chapters before. Uh, and there we find Elijah, that is Elijah's predecessor, and he's hiding in the desert. Uh, he's hiding in the desert because what Elijah has done is he has um, killed all the prophets of Baal in Israel. And the dynasty of Omri is pretty angry because they worship Baal. And they want to go and kill Elijah. And Elijah is hiding. And while he's hiding, he's depressed. He's in a very bad mood. And then he receives a message from God. And this message is recorded for us in 1 Kings 19, 13 through 18. I'm going to read. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. So this is, uh, people of Israel have started to worship Baal. And uh, Elijah has started to fight against that. And now he's in hiding. Another important part. And the Lord said to him, 
go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king of Assyria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So what is going on here? While Elijah was hiding in the desert from the dynasty of Omri, he received a promise that his efforts for God were not in vain, but that God has left a remnant of 7,000 people who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Elijah is not alone, right? He's not the only one. He doesn't need to be depressed. And in order to free this remnant of 7,000 people, God is going to do three things through Elijah. Elijah is supposed to anoint Hazael to become the king of the Arameans. He's supposed to anoint Elisha as his successor, and he's supposed to anoint Jehu to become king of Israel. Now, the interesting thing about Jehu is that Jehu does not belong to the dynasty of Omri. He is a different person. And if you, read, if you continue to read the book of Kings, what you will see is that Jehu is anointed to become king. He takes over the throne, he usurps, and then he goes ahead and eradicates the entire dynasty of Omri, and he does away with all the Baal worship in the nation. But he can only do so because Hazael simultaneously becomes the king of the Arameans. Because when Hazael becomes the king of the Arameans, he's so powerful that he can put so much external political pressure on Israel that Jehu's coup is able to succeed. So what 1 Kings 19 then shows us is that God orchestrates the events of world history, really, for the sake of this remnant of 7,000 faithful worshipers in the nation. Now, when we get back to 2 Kings 8, we will see how this promise begins to become a reality. Elisha has become the successor of Elijah, and then he meets Hazael, who is about to become the king of the Arameans. God has set the stage of world history for us to watch. Now, the passage is a fascinating passage for two reasons in particular. The first thing is that we see here that the word of God spoken by Elisha is what sets world history into motion. Elisha instructs Hazael uh, to tell Ben-Hadad that he will recover from his sickness. Even though God had shown him that he will surely die. And then it is Elijah's words which give Hazael his evil idea of killing his predecessor. Uh, note that Elijah does not instruct Hazael to go ahead and kill Ben-Hadad to become king. He only says that Ben-Hadad will surely die. And then he also says that Hazael will become the king in his place. So Hazael understands this as his opportunity that has come to go back home, kill Ben-Hadad, and take the throne in his place. This is a very interesting way to phrase this. The way this passage works, really, it shows that 
God never really becomes the direct cause for the evil that Hazael does. Hazael himself remains the cause for all the evil that he inflicts. But ultimately, it is God who ensures that his prophecy to Elijah in 1 Kings 19 becomes a reality. Hazael would not have done what he did if he had not been uh, in this meeting with Elijah. By sending the prophet, God actively plays his part in doing away with the dynasty of Omri. God goes to great lengths for the benefit of his people, his 7,000 faithful worshipers in Israel. He literally takes down kings and raises up new kings to redeem his people. We have this morning sung a passage from the Magnificat, the, the song of Mary from, from Luke 2, when she has announced that she's going to give birth to the Savior of the world. And um, it literally says that, in, in how, we, how we sing, that God has shown the strength of his arm and he has scattered the proud in their hearts. This is what God is doing here. This is precisely this. This is what we see in the Song of Mary from Luke 2 as well. And do we dare to believe that the God who created heaven and earth would also use the superpowers of our day as tools to work on us for our benefit? 2 Kings 8 asks us to view history as the stage of God's actions for his people. Think about the Iron Curtain. Yes, the Iron Curtain certainly fell because of external and internal political pressure on the Soviet Union, but 2 Kings 8 asks us to understand that it ultimately fell because of God, and because God wanted his word to be preached freely in this eastern part of the world. Or think about the Protestant Reformation. You can see how God worked on the political level there. He raised up kings to ensure that the rediscovered gospel would be successful in Europe. Think about Henry VIII of England. Surely his main motivation to become a Protestant king was to be able to divorce and remarry, which the Roman Catholics wouldn't allow him. Yet God used him to bring the Reformation to England, like Hazael. Hazael was anything but a God-fearing man. However, God uses him for the sake of his 7,000 worshipers in Israel. This is, the message that, this is the message of hope that the book of Kings communicates. God is the author of history. But he's not the author of a directionless history. History does not just happen. Rather, God orchestrates history for the sake of his people. Or to put it more bluntly, history exists for God and his people. If you are a Christian today, be sure that your life your situation, and your story is not a coincidence. God shaped history in such a way as to get you where he wants you to be today. It's in history that God showed his love for us. And this is not only true on the big political level, but it's also true on the personal level. God orchestrates the events of our own lives for our benefit. Theologians have called this God's providence. And here's how the Heidelberg Catechism explains God's providence. Question, what do you understand 
by the providence of God. Answer, the almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth, and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Nothing comes to us by chance, but by the fatherly hand of God. This is the message of hope that the book of Kings applies to the history of Israel. And it is what we should apply to our very own stories as well. Think about what an amazing difference this can make in our lives. If we begin to understand that God loves us and writes the stories of our lives, we can, as the Heidelberg Catechism also says, be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and have good confidence in God our Father for the future. Patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and have good confidence in God our Father for the future. Think about how freeing this is. Our culture tells us to run and make haste to be the authors of our own happiness. And this has certainly created a multitude of people who are stressed and sometimes even mentally ill. Our attempt to make ourselves God leaves us bitter because of the limits of our creatureliness. But embracing God's loving providence makes us patient and thankful and confident. Now I have said that 2 Kings 8, 7 through 15 shows us that God shapes history to take away our failures. And we have looked at how God works in history and now we have to look at how God uses history to take away our failures. We have seen that God had promised Elijah that he would bring down the dynasty of Omri and all its injustices. And then we have also seen how God himself begins to act to make this happen. We have seen how Hazael and Jehu kind of work it out between them to take away with the dynasty of Omri. But we have also seen how bloody of a business they have together. Jehu kills the entire dynasty of Omri. He kills all the priests of Baal. Hazael inflicts tremendous suffering upon the people of Israel. And what we see here is how God very radically cuts away everything that was ill in Israel for the benefit of his 70,000, the remnant faithful worshipers. And this is precisely why we see the man of God cry in this passage. Elisha knows exactly how painful this is going to become. God's cutting away of what is bad involves a lot of pain for Israel. Yet it takes away the dynasty of Omri and the worship of Baal. God takes away Israel's failure. He takes away the source of evil, injustice, and wrong worship through both Jehu and Hazael. And I think we're often tempted to think that God is not good if bad things happen to us. We tend to think that God might have turned 
his back on us. But sometimes God needs to cut away that which is bad in his people in order to redeem that which is good. We can see this, for instance, in churches or Christian institutions which have to expose the unjust and sinful behavior of their leaders. Such a process is immensely painful for everyone involved, but it has to be done for the sake of the church. We also see this in the lives of Christians who go through tremendous suffering, yet see God working in their lives through their pain. A good, good example is Joni Erickson Tada, a woman bound to a wheelchair since her youth, who suffers from incredible hardship, and yet in her books she often writes how she praises God for using her wheelchair to bring her nearer to him. Sometimes God begins to cut away things in our lives in order for us to see his love more clearly. And 2 Kings 8 does not hide the fact that this process can be immensely painful. This is why we see Elisha cry. We are allowed to mourn the losses that can come with God's cutting. We are allowed to cry over the bad things that happen to us. We can rely on God's loving providence, yet lament the losses that come with it. We can rely on God's loving providence, yet lament the losses that come with it. We can trust that it is for our benefit. It is what pushes us to draw nearer to God and his love for us. In Israel, as we have seen, God took away that which hindered the people of God to worship him truly. In our lives, God might take away those things which hinder us from being in fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. Spurgeon famously once said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me unto the rock, which is Christ. Our lives, with their joys and pains, are stories of God throwing us back unto the rock, which is Christ. You see, God shapes history to take away that which hinders us from growing in love for God and for our neighbor. He takes away our failures to draw us closer to him. So what are we supposed to do now? I think our response to this passage should be to praise God. We have the privilege of serving a God who shapes history for us, for his church. He is a, a God of unfathomable wisdom who works in the events of history to draw his people, us, every single one of us, nearer to him. So I would encourage you in the upcoming week to praise God, not only for the good things, but also praise him for the things that were not good in your life. Praise him for the bad things, for the situations that have forced you to flee in prayer to God, for the situations that have brought you nearer to God by showing you that he is the hope of history, for the situations in which you cried and God cried alongside you. Ultimately, our lives are stories of God's faithfulness to us. He is the God who at the cross took the worst of history upon himself for our sake. It is in Jesus that God raised the scalpel of history against himself to make our stories a beautiful painting of his faithfulness. 
Praise him for that. Praise him for your stories and for the stories of those around you because God works in your life today. Amen.